0: Well, what a joy to be here today. Uh, it's been a very full week, and uh, many of you are tired, so I'm going to do my best to kind of keep you awake. Uh, I'm really glad to uh, be here and join and worship with you. So grateful also uh, for the many hours that so many of you put in this last week over at our church. And So on behalf of Bible Church of Buena Park and Iglesia Biblica Agape, I want to thank you so much for your partnership with us in the ministry of uh, of the gospel this week. I'm uh, encouraged to know that your pastor is going to be speaking at my church today, and I know that he'll, uh, our congregation will be fed well, and uh, you have a wonderful pastor, a wonderful church, and we're grateful for the opportunities we have from time to time to partner with you. Uh, let me say another thing or two about VBS. Uh, what we did this past week really does make a difference. It's not just all fun and games like what we saw, but there was a lot of great teaching taking place. And uh, there were a couple kids that came up to teachers and were asking very uh, thoughtful questions. One kid uh, uh, who had to go be with his father because their parents were separated, uh, had to go be with his father in Chino on Thursday and just made such a ruckus about wanting to be back at VBS that his father drove him back on Saturday. He says it's about Jesus and about God and God wants me to be there. (laughs) So, (laughs) So we're looking forward to the opportunity to follow up with many of these kids and we do have a bi-weekly youth outreach that uh, we trust the Lord will use that as a chance to continue to plant and water the seeds that have been planted in that ministry. Well, you can open your Bible this morning to the 19th Psalm, the 19th Psalm. I love preaching from the Psalms, and I often make that my uh, book of study in our evening services. In fact, we're tonight completing a six-month study of Psalm 119. I thought about doing that to you this morning, but I figured we'd never get out of here if we we went through that. Psalm 19 is a bit more of a manageable portion of scripture, and we're really only going to focus today on the last portion of it. We will spend some time overviewing uh, the whole psalm, but our study will be in earnest in verses 11 through 14. For as long as I've been in California, I've been living in apartments and uh, several years ago, I was sharing one up in Santa Clarita with three other Messy guys, and I remember one morning walking out onto the balcony and looking about and seeing a bunch of trash and junk just stacked up there on the balcony, and there was dirt blown in from the wind and everything. And I thought, you know, that we we need to clean this up. This this looks awful. But then I thought to myself, well, it's it's outside. That's that's not so bad. I guess it's okay if it's dirty outside. Then I walked inside the apartment and saw dirt and trash and soiled carpets and things like that, and there was like a revelation just dawned on me. I thought, wow, you know, it's supposed to be different in here than it is out there. The inside is supposed to be different from the outside. Uh, Now, for those of you who keep a clean house, that's not too great of a revelation, But uh, it really impressed me. Wow, you know, there is supposed to be a great distinction from where it is that we dwell and that which is on the outside. And that is a very good illustration or analogy, I think, of what the concept of holiness is. Holiness is being set apart, distinct, separate, And our lives are to be set apart unto God and distinct from that which is on the outside. When we come to Psalm 19 this morning, and we look at the latter portion of it, we find it is a portion given over to the concept of holiness. And what our response and our lifestyle ought to be before a glorious and holy God. Psalm 19 is an exceedingly rich psalm. It is very significant theologically. The first six verses speak about the fact that God has revealed himself generally to all men. It tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. The verses which follow that, verses 7 through 10, shift in focus to speak not about general revelation, how God reveals himself generally to all men, but more specifically it speaks of special revelation. And that's how God reveals himself especially to us through his written word. I think we would do well before we go on to verses 11 and 14 to read together this first portion of the psalm. And we'll just overview it with a, a broad outline and then we'll come into the focus of our study today. We're told in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there is no language, their voice is not heard. Yet their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. These verses tell us how God reveals himself, that he reveals himself in general through the skies. It's interesting to me that in verses 1 through 6, the name of God that is used is the simple Hebrew uh, uh, title, Elohim. It is the general name for God, and it's fitting that those verses describe God's general revelation. Uh, We see in these verses, the opening verses, how God reveals himself with creation. In verse 2, we're told he does it unceasingly, day unto day, night after night is pouring forth speech. We see also that God reveals himself generally uh, in verse 3, inaudibly. And I'm going to suggest to you a translation similar to that of the New American Standard, which reads something like this. There is no speech. There is no language. Their voice is not heard. So this is God's wordless book, creation. God reveals himself generally, to all men generally, in an inaudible way. Verse 4 tells us this general revelation is made known universally. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And verses 5 through 6 continue that idea of universal witness, but they have another feature to them. They speak of the unmistakable nature of God's revelation. As sure as the sun is shining up in the sky and can't be missed, how nothing is hidden from its heat, so God's revelation in general to all men is made known. But it's not enough to know God generally through creation. We may know there is a God. We may know that he is powerful and that we must answer to him, but it is not enough to bring us into an intimate personal relationship with him. We need something more specific. We need something special. And so verses 7 through 10 speak about God's special revelation. Uh, this is revealed in the scripture. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. The fear of the Lord even refers to the scripture. The fear of the Lord, the reveal religion of relating to God. and The judgments of the Lord. Verses 7-8 through speak about the Scripture being the spring of all sorts of precious benefits to us. And 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, tell us how the Scripture is the source of priceless riches to us. Enduring riches, true and righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, sweeter than even the honeycomb. So, altogether, these 10 verses tell us how God reveals himself. But that's not the whole story of the psalm. Our focus today is on verses 11 through 14, which I often think are the neglected portion of the psalm. These verses focus on David's response to what God has revealed about himself. And by extension, it reveals to us what our response ought to be to this glorious God who has so wonderfully revealed himself. If you're taking notes this morning, I think the one central theme of this entire psalm could be summarized with this statement. That Psalm 19 describes how God reveals himself so that we might properly relate to him. Psalm 19 describes how God reveals himself so that we might properly relate to him verses 1 through 6 the sky reveals to us the glory of God's power and verses 7 through 10 the scripture reveals the glory of God's grace it is the name Yahweh used in these verses the personal god who can be known now in verses 11 through 14 we see the saint responds to God's revelation with holiness these last four verses are different from the previous 10 the previous ten are instruction about God. These four verses are prayer to God. The first two-thirds of the psalm speaks of God's revelation, and this portion speaks of our response. And the hard attitudes of David here are an example for us of true holiness. It's interesting that in these last four verses, the term holy and holiness never appears. Yet these verses breathe and bleed with the concept of of holiness. And so this morning in these four verses I'd like to paint for you, point out to you, five essentials of holiness that God's revelation requires of us. Five essentials of holiness that God's revelation uh, requires of us. And, And by way of preview, let me list them out to you and then we'll study them one by one. The first thing we'll see is that we are to develop an appreciation for God's Word. Secondly, we'll see this morning, we ought to develop a sensitivity to the presence of sin. Next, we'll see we need to develop a watchfulness over the influences of the world. And then we'll see we are to develop a confidence in the power of grace. And lastly, to develop a passion for the worship of God. Five essentials of holiness that God's revelation requires of us. Now let's look at the first of those. It's found in verse 11. This verse teaches us to develop an appreciation for the word of God. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and it reads this way, verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What David had just described in verses 7 through 10 about the richness of God's word and its all-encompassing impact upon a person's life was not for him just some abstract thoughts. It was not just philosophical pondering. It was very much a theology of life as much as it was a theology for his mind. And so when he says in verse 11 that the Word of God warns and rewards, it teaches us that it is is one thing to believe the right things about the Bible, but it is wholly another thing for the Word of God to impact us. If the Word of God only informs us, but does not transform us, then we are truly losing its significance. Notice what the Word of God does, the appreciation he has for it. He notes that... It warns us. By them, your servant is warned. It warns us of God's holy standards and of our human sinfulness. There are a number of different things that God gives us as warnings. There is something innate within each human being called the conscience, which is God's built-in warning device. And it's a wonderful tool But the problem with the human conscience is that it can be muffled and turned down and distorted. I went to a Christian university founded by a uh, well-known evangelist of uh, decades ago. And as he got older, he moved away from the presidency and uh, had more of a figurehead position, but he still often spoke in chapel. And he often preached long in chapel, which didn't work well because there were classes that followed after that and his son who was the president decided something needed to be done about that so they had installed on the pulpit a little red light and when time was coming near to the end that light would come on and when he really went long it would start flashing and students could actually see the red light glaring in his face but he, he didn't want to pay attention to that. He would take his Bible and cover up the red light and keep preaching. And every once in a while, look up at the sound booth and say, Turn that thing off there. I'm not done yet. Well, you know, a lot of people do exactly the same thing with their conscience. Their light, the light flashes and blares at them, warning them. And they've learned to cover it up. Conscience is a great guard, but it can be distorted. In God's grace, in God's mercy to us, He has given us another tool by which we may be warned and by which our conscience may be informed and empowered. It is the Word of God. God's Word has a wonderful ministry of uh, of warning us and informing us of God's standards and of our fallenness. It is so important, brothers and sisters, for us to be people of the book. To be people who are in the Word daily. To be as the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97, who says, Oh, how I love your law! It is my meditation all the day. Develop a positive attitude toward the Scripture. It warns us of our fallen tendencies and of our errors. But it is not only has a negative ministry towards us, it also has a very positive ministry in our lives. It also rewards us. We're told in the end of verse 11, and in keeping them, that is doing them, observing them, there is great reward. Being a person of God's word is not simply a matter of not doing things and always uh, asking for forgiveness. There is there is to be such joy and and a happiness in serving the Lord and being immersed in his word. What are the great benefits that come to those who have an appreciation for the word? Well, I think they are the things which are laid out in the previous verses. Uh, They are uh, that which are able to convert or turn the soul, to turn the life around, both in the period of, in the moment of spiritual salvation as well as in life. This expression, converting the soul in verse 7, can refer to a whole host of things, of turning away into a different direction, into a proper direction. It makes the simple-minded person wise. It also gives joy to the heart, as verse 8 says. It brings light to the eyes. Not, meaning not only that there's a, a, an ability now to perceive things as they really are, but this expression, enlightening the eyes, also refers to a, a sense of life being brought. So someone who uh, gets a drink of cold water when they're thirsty and their eyes lighten up and they're able to see and enjoy life like they've not been able to before. The benefits of God's word are also found in the verses which follow. Forgiveness of sin. Walking with God. Enjoying the knowledge of His presence. Many, many benefits in the Word. Develop an appreciation for the Word of God. The first essential of holiness in this psalm. Notice with me, please, the second essential of holiness that God's revelation requires of us. It's found... In verse 12. Well, we could summarize this verse this way Develop a sensitivity to the presence of sin. Develop a sensitivity to the presence of sin. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. David has, in this psalm, been confessing God's goodness and His greatness, but now he must turn around and confess his own weakness and his own fallenness. He knew the high demands of God's Word, and he also knew something of the deep depravity of his own soul. Who can know his errors? It's like what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who of us really knows the depth of our depraved souls? We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are not as bad as we are. Left to ourselves. David understood there was a depth, a blackness which he could not penetrate. He knew that there were failures that he had, sins which he committed, that he was probably not even conscious of. And so he says, cleanse me of secret faults. Now the expression secret faults here is not referring to sinful things or evil things that you and I do in secret that nobody else knows about but that we know about. Certainly that's bad and we need God's grace to overcome those things. That's hypocrisy. But what David speaks of here is not that sort of secret sin. These are secret sins which are secret even to him. Because his conscience is not sensitized as it ought to be, or he has not grown aware of the depth of the in, of the impact of fallenness upon his life, this is the sort of sins which are spoken about in Exodus chapter twenty one, verses twelve to fourteen, and also in Numbers chapter thirty one, verses fifteen to twenty seven. We'll not look at those this morning. This morning, but those are the verses which speak about the forgiveness for inadvertent sins. Sins which you commit that you're not conscious of that you have committed. Wow, what sensitivity to sin, David, manifests here. I I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I have a hard enough time confessing the sins I'm conscious about. Much less thinking about things that I'm not conscious about. All of us have blind spots, spiritually. There are parts of us that we don't see clearly. Clearly. Sometimes there are things that nobody else sees at all, Uh, and it's something that in time as you grow in grace, God makes known to you. And yet, if I can take this a little further, I think sometimes there are sins which other people see in us that we don't see in ourselves. We're blind to them. Let me share with you a story. I I had a friend uh, who about six or seven years ago lived down uh, in the South Bay area. And before he was married, actually before he had children, he was very much an athlete and exercised regularly. When kids came along, it became a little more difficult, and he had to get a little more creative to fit in his regular workout schedule. So he enjoyed bicycling. He bought one of those baby carriage things, you know, the ones that attach to the back of the bike, and you can drag your kid all over creation. And he had had their first child, and they had a second one, and he was out one day riding along with them. And had his headphones on, uh, riding out on the Strand, and he thought he heard something behind him. Uh, And he kind of looked over his shoulder and there's no one around. And he thought, hmm, I wonder what that was. And he kept riding and thought he heard it a couple more times and would look back periodically. Didn't see anything. And after about seven or eight miles, he decided to take a stop and he took off his headphones And he heard his two kids in the carriage behind them chanting together, Daddy, Daddy, we want out. Daddy, Daddy, we want out. I can only imagine what the other cyclists must have thought as they passed him going the other way. And here for miles, he had been dragging along these kids who were begging to be released from this, and he was totally oblivious to it. I think many Christian people have parts of their lives that are just like that. They've got these crying out loud sins that are just crying for them. People see it, other people see it, but they are completely oblivious to it. This is a reason, not only that we need to develop internally a sensitivity to the presence of sin, but this is really a reason why it is so important for us to be in a Christian community of people where we can serve as mirrors for one another where you can develop uh, loving relationships with people who you know they can, you can be transparent with them, and they with you, and they can explain to you or point out to you areas in which your life is offensive to God or to others. An essential of holiness, developing a sensitivity to the presence of sin. A third essential of holiness that God's revelation requires of us it's found in the first part of verse 13. we summarizes summarize it this way. Develop a watchfulness over the influences of the world. Develop a watchfulness over the influences of the world. Now maybe you've looked ahead at that verse and you're wondering how does he get that out of verse 13. And To explain that I guess I'm going to have to suggest to you a different translation of verse 13. The first part of it anyway. Every English version that I've consulted translates it something like this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now I'm reading from the New King James today and I notice that the word I have here for sins is in italics. And maybe it is in the version that you're reading from today. And that is a tool of the translators to indicate to us that this is a word that has been added into the English translation to facilitate our understanding. I'm going to suggest to you today that perhaps that's not the best word to place in italics. Every other time that this Hebrew word, presumptuous, it's literally presumptuous ones, every other time that it appears in the Old Testament, it is translated as presumptuous men. In fact, I could take you to a couple of verses which illustrate that. Maybe it would be good for us to flip over 100 psalms to the 119th psalm. Keep your place here in Psalm 19. And look with me at a few of these verses in Psalm 119 where this same Hebrew word appears. Psalm 119, verse 51 reads this way. The proud, the arrogant ones, the presumptuous ones, Have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Look at verse 69, you'll see it again. The proud, the arrogant ones, the presumptuous ones, have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Look at uh, verse uh, 78. Uh, Let the proud, the presumptuous ones, be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate On your precepts, we'll look at one more together. Verse seventy-eight. Oh, we just looked at that one, didn't we? Uh, Well, let's look at verse one twenty-one. You'll see another one. That'll be the last one. There's several others, but uh, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Verse one twenty-two. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud, the presumptuous ones, oppress me. What we see in Psalm 119 and the other times where this Hebrew word appears is that godliness is always something that is met with friction in the world in which we live. It's not just a New Testament truth, very much an Old Testament truth that there are ungodly people who are bold and presumptuous in their sinfulness who wish to exert upon us an ungodly influence. And I believe that is the sort of thing that David has in mind here in Psalm 19 let them not have dominion over me god do not let these arrogant proud men with their forceful influence let them not impact me negatively do not let their their wayward thinking and their proud thoughts infect my mind and influence me away from yourself you know the choice of our company is so very important The people that you long and love to spend time with will have an impact upon you. If I can take this application maybe a little step further, and I hesitate to say this to church because people misunderstand when I bring this up, but it's important for us to think about it. Your choice of entertainment is also important. I have chosen in my apartment not to have television. And uh, in saying that, that is really not a, a badge of honor for me, it's really a, more an indication of my own weakness. I know myself. I know the hour, hours upon hours that I would waste in front of that little black box. Not to mention the other influences which so easily come across it, which can sidetrack your spiritual life. Uh, a number of months ago, I visited with a friend at his home, and uh, we ordered a pizza and sat down and watched television. I'm not opposed to television. I'm not telling you, throw out your television. Let me say that right away. This is just a illustration, all right. I went to this friend's house, we ordered a pizza, and I hadn't watched television in many months. We sat there for an hour and a half, and I saw more violence and vulgarity and sexuality in that hour and a half than I had seen in three months. And I thought, my goodness, what is this thing? Now, I enjoy television. I, I, in fact, I frequently use illustrations from the Muppets in my sermons. Uh, I guess that dates me. I don't know. <laughs> I remember listening to a Christian radio broadcast uh, a few weeks ago, and the hosts were challenging their listeners to have their families fast from television for a month. And I thought, wow. Imagine how much more we would accomplish. Imagine how less hindered we would be if we weren't always so glued to that one-eyed monster. We can make extensions of this to other things, uh, movies and whatever. Now, again, I'm not telling you don't go to a movie or don't rent one about once a week or so. I pick up a DVD and run it off my laptop. But friends, we need to be watchful over the influences of the world. I think if we were to take maybe a little fast from television or the theater for a while, we would probably find some positive influences, some uh, rather positive impact upon us, especially if we choose to replace that with other things. Now, if you have control over your remote control and uh, you're able to keep a guard over your mind when you go to the theaters and everything, I say, God bless you and may your tribe increase. I'm not uh, don't please don't go out here saying he, uh, we had a guest speaker who talked about burning books and bashing televisions. but as we de- develop a, a sensitivity to the presence of sin let us along with that develop a watchfulness over the influences of the world. The fourth essential of holiness I see in the end of verse 13 develop a confidence, in the power of grace. He says in the middle of the verse, then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. David knows the power of God's forgiving grace. God, you you cleanse me of my sins. God, you give me an appreciation for your word. God protect me from ungodly influences, and I will know in my experience the blessedness of forgiveness. I'll know there's a power in that to keep me clean. Holiness is not merely a matter of us cleaning ourselves off, it is a matter of God cleaning us off and our being devoted to Him. I shall be blameless, He says. Upright, has another version. It doesn't mean he'll be absolutely sinless. But it means that in God's eyes, he will be well-pleasing, acceptable, have a proper moral standing with him. I shall be innocent of great transgression, he says. Acquitted, it means. Innocent. Uh, not, not in the sense of innocent, like I've never done anything wrong, but a sort of innocence where I am no longer punishable for what I have done wrong, Because the price has been paid for in another way. It's a similar, it's a Hebrew equivalent to the New Testament word for justified. I shall be innocent of great transgression, reads the New King James Version. Great transgression. What is this? The King James Version has, I shall be uh, acquitted of the great transgression. Uh, And some people have wondered, what is the great transgression? What sin is he thinking about in particular? There have been a number of different theories that have floated. One is that he's referring to idolatry. Certainly in Old Testament Israel, that would have been a great transgression. Others have said, perhaps this refers to adultery, which is a breaking of covenant with men, as the first is a breaking of covenant with God. Or others have suggested some other great sin of some uh, tremendous significance. I'm going to suggest to you a, a slight variation of the translation here, which will perhaps make clear what David means. I suggest the translation could be here, Then I shall be innocent of much transgression. The word for great here can easily, just as easily be translated as much. In fact, it is translated that same way back in verse 10. Uh, More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. The issue at hand here is not that there's just one particular sin or one kind of sin that this kind of holiness will free a man from but all kinds of sin. Much transgression is covered by the grace of God. The grace of God gives us power to deal with all kinds of transgressions and failures. There is no sin too great for God and there is no amount of sin that is too great for God's grace to deal with. I, I love hearing the, uh, recounting the story of John Newton, you know, the British slave trader turned to Christ who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Who's a Baptist preacher Preached for many years in a small country church in England. Toward the end of his ministry, he was, as he was growing old, he became very repetitive and very forgetful and he tended to say the same things week after week. And his congregation, while they were patient with him, were growing tired of hearing the same things all the time. And one night in a candid moment of acknowledgement, he said something like this. He said, I am getting old and I have forgotten many things. But these two things I remember. I am a great sinner, and Jesus Christ is a great Savior. This is a man who had a confidence in the power of God's grace, and led him to a life of holiness. The last essential of holiness we see in this psalm that God's revelation requires of us is found in verse 14. Develop a passion for the worship of God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Worship. This is a verse that is used in many different contexts and oftentimes it's not associated with the concept of worship. And yet in this verse, there are several expressions used that are used very extensively throughout the Psalms for the public and private worship of God. For instance, the expression acceptable in thy sight. That is the same expression used not only in the Psalms, but also uh, in the, the books of the law about the way that sacrifices were to be prepared. If they were prepared in such a way and the certain ingredients were used, then the sacrifice would be acceptable to God. The word meditation as well is a worship term actually. A word often used to describe what the thoughts that run through the minds of a worshiper as he's engaged in worshiping God both at the tabernacle or in the temple or even privately. And so it's interesting this psalm ends in like fashion as it began. It began by talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And it ends by selling us that we ought also to be declaring his glory. In a sense, all of life is to be an act of worship. Everything you do, uh, where you go to work, where you go to school, the time you spend with your family is all to be lived Coram Deo, before the presence of God. And we should ask God to help us to so speak and to so think As though we are always in his presence. And that everything we do. And think and say. Would be set apart unto him. But let me suggest to you. That I think David has a more specific aspect. Of worship in mind. That he is thinking. Not solely. But primarily. In terms of the attitudes we ought to have. When we gather together. For the public worship of God. It's interesting that the Jewish rabbis. And the. Rabbinic traditions have long used verse 14 in their public worship. A means of preparing their people, as they think anyway, to engage God in worship. How very, very careless we can become when we come into God's presence and when we assemble together as God's temple. How easy it is to come to church after having a fight with your wife or a spat with your kids or coming with a general sense of prayerlessness and not focused upon whom you're going to focus on. And we disservice God in that way, even as we hold a service in His name. And the reason that David is so sensitive about wanting to come into God's presence with a prepared heart, a heart that is wholly devoted unto Him, is because he knows what a great God His Lord has been to him. Look at how he describes his God at the end of this verse. Oh Lord, my, literally, my rock and my redeemer. God is our rock. That's a a term not for just a small stone or a boulder. This is the sort of word used to describe a rocky mountain, something like Masada. God is that sort of refuge for us. He is also our redeemer. The one who redeems and rescues our souls from the troubles and trials of sin as well as the one who delivers us from the traps of an ungodly world. With a God like that, the God who is so glorious in power and so gracious in his dealings with us, the only the only proper response is holiness. I find it interesting that our English word holy, H-O-L-Y, etymologically, historically, is related to the other English word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And in English, the tradition went that if you were holy completely set apart to god then you were holy to god set apart distinct the saint responds to god's revelation with holiness at the beginning of the message this morning i took you into my old apartment And talked about things as they were. And how they shouldn't have been as they were. I find it interesting that the word of God uses a similar picture. To describe the way that we ought to respond to God's revelation. Colossians 3.16. The apostle Paul is speaking as a whole to the church at Corinth. And encourages them that they ought to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Richly. And the remainder of the psalm speaks, uh, the chapter speaks about the effects that would have upon them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, give the word a lavish dwelling place within you. When you have a guest come into your home, a guest that is uh, worthy of respect and attention, you bring them into the center of your home and everything is prepared and cleaned and you lavish attention upon them and everything centers around them as long as they are there. So it ought to be with the Word of God. ought to bring it into the parlor of our souls. Make it the center of attention and let everything around it be centered, committed to it. Our God, we thank You for the glorious revelation of Yourself in the Word of God. We thank You that You are a God who reveals Himself to all men, that there is no excuse for anyone not to know that there is a great and powerful God. You have revealed yourselves to us that way. And you have more preciously revealed yourself in the Word of God. There you have disclosed your person and your plans, your power, your dealings with us. And you have made it possible for us to know you not only in general, but especially to be drawn close to you. And Lord, we know that if we would be close to you, if we would be in covenant faithfulness to you, then we must be holy. Our Lord, we ask that you would cause us to respond as David has responded in this psalm. To give ourselves over to you. To ask you to search our hearts and our souls. To see if there be any wicked way in us. To lead us in the way everlasting. Our God, we confess to you that there are many ways in which we are unholy, in which we are not committed, devoted, holy to you. There are parts of our lives that we let languish in sin. There are delights that we have which we ought not to delight in. There are influences we allow to come over us which we ought to bar from us. That there are sins which we commit that we are not even fully conscious of. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are forgiving God. That there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We do pray that your spirit would do his work in our hearts this morning. That the mirror of your word would be held up to us. So we might see those things which are not committed unto you. We might release them and embrace you alone. We thank you for the power of your grace that makes it all possible. The grace that gives us the strength and the ability and the forgiveness for holiness. Thank you, our Father. We have come to you this day in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.